Welcome to Running a Nice, the coolest community in free. I'm your host, Mary O'Connell, bringing you the latest tech updates, warehouse news, and everything happening in the cold chain world. Not only is there the coolest show in freight, but there's also Running on Ice, a newsletter that could not be colder. You can subscribe to that on FreightWaves.com slash Running on Ice. Today, we are joined by the one and the only Jonas Svartau, VP of Customer and Business Development in North America at New Cold. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jonas. Thank you, Mary, for having me. I'm pretty excited about today um, because I know that you and I have talked previously about, um, you know, Lebanon and why Lebanon, Indiana is a cool place to start a mega huge cold chain warehouse. But today we're kind of getting into more than that. But before we get too start, before we get too far, let's get some background on you and kind of how you started at New Gold. Okay. Um, so first of all, the strange accent is from the Netherlands. So that's where I, I was born and that, uh, that's where I worked for a long time. Um, initially at the predecessor of New Cold, and I called Partner Logistics, and logistics company also very much focused on the food industry and automation. And then uh, joined New Cold in 2014 with the, the, yeah, the objective to, to enter the U.S. market. So actually our founders uh, asked me to move to the USA and um, yeah, try to enter the market here, working initially from the kitchen table in, uh, in my apartment in Chicago. And um, by now, if we fast forward to today, uh, yeah, New Cold's actually growing in North America as a significant yeah, food logistics provider. So very proud to have been part of that journey and, uh, and the team that's uh, go- getting bigger and bigger and, uh, and growing the business. I'm excited that, you know, you don't have all of New Cold North America working at your kitchen table as well, because that would get a little cramped. And I feel like make for a really awkward dinner time or like, you know, lunchtime when you have a whole bunch of people trying to work around your kitchen table when it's probably good for like maybe five to six people. It would be a very, very big kitchen table at the moment. I would not know how that would look like. It's a, that's a project in itself. You kind of mentioned, you, you kind of mentioned that you guys are experiencing great growth and, you know, no, not everyone can fit around a kitchen table. You have multiple offices, multiple new uh, actual cold storage warehouses. Um, can you kind of discuss what the drivers are behind these growing trends of warehouse automation and kind of where do you envision these, this warehouse automation going into the future? Yeah, yeah. I think a lot, a lot, a lot of questions in one question. Um, so, so I'll try to, um, I'll try to unpack them a little bit. I remember this approach is very good, uh, Mary. Uh, no, but let me try to unpack them and just, just help me uh, where, where you think that I, I should go. So. So first of all, of, all, of, all, of all, I think we've all experienced under COVID that there's a lot of ways that logistics and supply chains can be disrupted. Um, and I think that has put a lot of companies back at their uh, table thinking about how can we make our supply chains more resilient. And um, then they, they think of the context in which they operate and in which um, yeah, the, 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 the service levels and you know, how, are, how the shippers of goods deliver goods to their to their customers, that becomes more important and more important. It's from the consumer side order today, ship today, or from the retail and food service companies order today, ship tomorrow. It's a very different, um, yeah, let's say objectives that people are having versus years ago when there was much more lead time in the supply chain. If you combine that with, um, with significant um, constraints in labor availability to actually operate the logistics networks in warehouses and transport that were there that were built historically it becomes increasingly challenging to actually provide those services 
uh, in the right way, let alone at the right cost. And if you, you look in the world around us, how inflationary it has been, um, it's not easy to keep doing all of this um, yeah, at, a, at a reliable way. So companies rethink their supply chains. And, and when you then rethink supply chains, you often come to the conclusion that because of the growth of organizations, supply chains have become very, very complex. Um, a lot of suppliers, a lot of production locations, a lot of warehouses, um, a lot of forward warehouses as well, even second steps in the supply chain. It becomes just unmanageable in this environment of scarcity of labor and, and volatility. So, so when you simplify your supply chain, often warehouse nodes become very big. Very big to operate, especially again with those labor constraints. And you, of course, you feel it coming. That's where we see with the, with the food companies we work with, they often come to the conclusion, higher levels of automation need to be implemented to manage uh, those, those important nodes in the network in the right way. And then, then automation in itself, of course, is a word we need to unpack. But I'll pause for a second to give you the, uh, the microphone back. Um, so one of the things that everybody like that has come up a lot that I just kind of um, I never really realized until, you know, you end up talking to a provider. So if I'm, you know, sitting here and I'm like, I'm a shipper, I'm going to reinvent, I'm going to re redo my supply chain, move things, near shore some things or, you know, set up a new facility. Um, I'm just decided I'm going to overhaul my whole supply chain. At what point in time, as me as a customer, should I be reaching out to some of my providers, like, you know, my my warehouse people, my um, my, tra- my my trucks that move things, like, if I'm overhauling my supply chain, I feel like I need to get those providers and those vendors on early, so that way they can make the accommodations on their end, versus like, okay, I've done all this, our supply chain is going to be perfect and beautiful now, adapt to these changes, whether they're realistic or not. Is that kind of a good line of thinking that, like, you know, if you are going to overhaul your supply chain and you know, reduce some waste or improve it. Like, should should you be getting your partners involved early? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a very good call out. And I think a, a reality that rethinking supply chains happens in every level of the organization. So uh, I'm, I'm sure that, that people that offload the trucks in our warehouses uh, are, are often rethinking the way that trucks are, are better able to show up on time so that they can do their, their warehouse uh, activities in a better way. And the same as the CEO, how they would like to restructure their supply chain and cut out their most inefficient and expensive nodes. So, th- so I think it's a good reality check that rethinking happens everywhere in the in the company level. If we, if we think about really material overhauls of the network, and that that often uh, is is best embedded in a strategic vision that's supported by the top of the company. Um, and then I'm I'm just simplifying my world. Uh, it, the, the top of the company in the USA where I recognize that some of the companies being present here, like ourselves, are actually having, let's say, leadership in other parts of the world. Um, but I think an, a strategic vision of how you how you uh, want to operate your network to provide the best value to your customers is super important. And then an empowerment of the teams that you think are responsible for that in your company to be driving that rethinking is, is the next step. Um, that is, uh, it's, it sounds very corny, but this is, I think, one of the most critical points of actually successfully implementing um, a, a new network. And because at the moment you're often doing it very bottom up, then there's a lot of people that are not part of the journey. And then you come up with a very singular focused, um, yeah, with a vision on the future supply chain. Because that's something that like, you know, you kind of, if your warehouse, like if I haven't changed anything as a customer, but my warehouse has figured out a way to load trucks more efficiently or store things where, 
you know, there's less chance of waste or something like that happening. Like, that's great. We love that efficiency. And I've had like, as a customer, it's super easy for me to implement that because, you know, the people who are actually doing the work have already kind of figured it out. If that just means I kind of have to alter when trucks come, that's just, that's kind of an easy fix. But I'm sitting here wanting to overhaul my network. I can't just overhaul my network and then go to my providers and say, okay, this is what we're doing now. And we're starting yesterday. Because then they're just kind of like, uh, it kind of sets everyone up for failure. And I think that's something that, you know, we forget is, you know, when when you go to make your make your supply chain improvements and you go to reduce waste and improve efficiency, you forget to get other people on board quick, like early in the process. So that way, you know, it's not just, well, you're a bad provider because you're not doing what I want. No, I'm doing what you want, but you have to give me more than like, you know, two days notice that this is what you want. Exactly. Yeah. If you, if you think about the, where we come in play as new cult, where we, we, we come, we come in view when there's really a strategic decision of leadership to rethink their network. And then we're really an analysis partner of, of that leadership, analyzing the current networks that exist, uh, understanding better where the challenges are in terms of surface or in cost. Or, or in resilience, which has been a theme, a theme increasingly since, since COVID. Um, and then uh, proposing a future network solutions, which uh, yeah, in, in our world, we, we often invite to, uh, advise to have a higher level of automation to manage the, uh, the, the activities that we currently see in the market. Um, yeah, again, recognizing automation is a broad term, but for us, that's, that for instance means on the warehousing side, um, yeah, warehouses that are specifically designed to use robotics in a, in a, in a very high level. And, uh, and that's what we see is taking significant cost out of the surface as well as increasing a 24 um, seven, yeah, high service reliability. Um, that doesn't mean is that this is the, the path for everybody. There, there can be a ton of companies that, that approach it more from the, let's say the, the more operational side of the business and look for an incremental improvement of their logistics activities. And it can very well be that they say, well, that means that I have to improve my own warehouse by introducing software or, or by imp- introducing automation of a part process. Th- those are things often as a outsourced partner like us uh, are, are much more challenging to accomplish to really go into somebody's company of a part process. That's more, much more like a yeah, supplier relationship of equipment. So I guess when you guys are called in, because you said you guys are kind of that that decision to have that data analysis come in, have someone and kind of say, okay, this is some things that you could do. This is some things that you could do better. Um, kind of how do you prioritize what should be automated first? Like, because obviously not everyone is the same. Sometimes I'm sure you get called into a warehouse that has a forklift and a couple guys working and that's about as far as an advance as they're doing. But then you also have some that, you know, might have some robotics and some light AI, but they just kind of maybe need to really level it up. Kind of how do you guys prioritize what kind of improvements that you can make for them that are actually like, you know, sustainable in the long term? Because obviously going in and saying, we're going to put like robots and AI and all of this great software straight in is kind of, I feel like, not always achievable all the time. Yeah, no, that's that's true. And therefore, we um, we don't don't often come in to uh, at least advise somebody and then say, well, please don't buy this equipment. So we're really an alternative third-party logistics service provider to, to whom you outsource your service. And then it's our decision to what level of, of automation we want to bring. And the, the reason why food shippers and that work with us choose for us is that we have, have a very much a proven track record 
in developing, owning, and operating these highly automated warehouse uh, facilities and organizing transport in between. Um, and so they, 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 they come on a path as if they feel that this is a solution direction that adds value to their supply chain, and they, they talk to us for our advice. And the interesting thing of us uh, inviting us early stage is that we actually look look to challenges that are there from the perspective of having operated these high, uh, uh, yeah, more automated solutions. So we can make a very quick assessment of whether the ch- challenges at hand fit well into the future solutions, which is, which is not so easy because you have to take into account a lot of different variables um, to determine whether automation is a, is a better, better path than where, what they have now. I like that you guys are that logistic service provider where someone has called you and you just come in and say, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. Like you can just, you just, you focus on what you're good at. And we're going to focus on what we're good at. And uh, you can just kind of consider your supply chain on autopilot and we'll take care of it for you. I feel like that's like the the very, the very like low key definition of new cold. It's just like, don't worry, we got you. Exactly. Exactly. We, we do. We do understand that this is an enormous level of trust, of course, and that you that you that you would put your destiny or your operation of your supply chain in the, in the hands of, of a company like ours, like you do that also with other 3PLs. So the process which we go through to to create the level of trust that we can actually execute what the requirements are is that at that, that initial stage where we analyze the supply chain, not only in the quantitative way with a lot of data analysis, but also in a qualitative way with workshops and site visits, that we truly understand uh, the business of our customers and making sure that the solutions that we design in warehousing and in transport are actually fulfilling the needs of our customers and also identifying risks which we need to take take uh, take away for for these automated solutions to be to be most effective. Uh, we call that uh, that implementation and transition management. I really like that you guys do that. Just kind of like a you you don't come in guns blazing like don't worry we're going to take this over. You're like hold on let's take a very reasonable approach to it. Let's gather all of our facts and figures and then go from there. Um, which to me any decision backed up by data is a good decision to me because you've got the you've got at least the groundwork there and you've done enough research to know that there's actually a need for this and it could fairly feasibly be completed. Yeah, the, the interesting part, if you think about data, they're, they often give a historical view of what has happened. And then the challenge often is, is when you truly rethink your supply chain, uh, how reliable is your historical data to envision the, the supply chain of the future? So actually a lot of work goes around not only looking at, well, the history is the truth, not only that, but determining together, well, what is the truth of the future that we need to we need to plan for, and and that is a that is a very interesting and re- revealing process, which often creates a really good basis, um, yeah, that to 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 build on. Have you guys ever come across? Uh, you don't have to like throw anyone under the bus, but have you come across some customers where you kind of go, oh, this this is you trying your best at like compiling historical data. That's that's. We we can help with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we can of course help with that. I I think it's uh, often when we come to the table with collecting data for the use of, of of analyzing a complete network and restructuring it, and then even more granular of making sure that where our solutions actually fulfill to the needs. Sometimes that the the, the 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 data points are there, but they are not in the reports that are useful for the process. So, so we, we help them to do that. That's kind of the, I've built this report and it's supposed to collect this data, but does it? Is it actually helpful? Exactly. What is the source of the data, et cetera? I think this is the, the, 
the phase of the development of our industry, which we're in, is that, that probably 20 years ago, I still recall that EDI was something very innovative, whereas today everybody has EDI, we're not talking APIs. Uh, I think really having really, really good data uh, is is today's for, uh, let's say, for, for larger companies are probably at that level, smaller companies not. I'm sure in five, five years from now, I mean, a lot of companies will have really great data because you simply cannot operate without anymore. In logistics, you often talk about the flow of goods, the physical goods, but I think that many industry insiders know that the flow of information has almost become more important. And um, yeah, that's of course what uh, what automated solutions need to be truly effective. Yeah, I think that as you know, we get more technology providers and more automation for some of those uh, more menial tasks or those menial things that are important. But it's just kind of a why would I have someone spend an entire day on this as their job when I have a system that could come in and do it? I think that that's going to be a way of the future, especially as you know you it's it's harder to find a good labor market or it might not be good you might have a harder time finding specifically what you're looking for in a qualified candidate i feel like that's kind of the future of making the most out of what you have of okay well i have this amazing group of people that already work work for me i might as well do what i can to make their day-to-day better so that way i can have them on tasks that i can't automate because i'm a big big fan of automate what you hate Yes, and that, Mary, in a way, your your beginning of our conversation was a really interesting perspective that you that you launched about. Well, where where does that rethinking of the supply chain happen uh, in in the organization? And I think the, the the risk is when you're when you're starting the conversation in the wrong part of the organization, then you you become in an analysis paralysis uh, position. Is that you keep analyzing everything to convince people that we're not involved. That, that things are right, whereas you start in the right strategic position, there has been a very clear reason why you're doing a, a um, rethinking of the supply chain, and and you 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 get much more focused on getting to your endpoint and to your solution. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the importance of strategic vision and people's often qualitative experience to actually cut through the data and make uh, make decisions for the future. Um, so I'm not saying that's a uh, yeah, people are no longer needed. I would say with the, the more data we have, the more important people get and to, to do the right thing. I've always been a big fan of, um, you know, you can have all the data and all the data analysis tools in the world, but if you don't have someone to sit there and, you know, take that data, make a decision, make an action plan and create something actionable out of it, then you just have a very expensive way to collect and manipulate data. Um, you, you were talking as well about, yeah, I think the, the level of automation that you have everywhere. So I think we already said there's, there's different levels for every context, there's a different solution. I think another interesting uh, thing what we see happening now is because this becomes a, such a dominant trend in almost everybody who wants to improve their supply chain. Well, let's think of automation, whether it's, smaller scale part solutions to optimize or whether it's truly large overhauls which we are often involved in it do it does create a strain on 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 the cave on the on the people and the companies that are involved in the market and and we see that happening all the time is that is that not everybody has the, the, the right amount of resources with the right skill set to actually help design develop and implement and ultimately operate these these more automated solutions um, which is something we need to solve as an industry. Um, and uh, it's a big challenge. I think that because because the whole supply chain, transportation, logistics industry got such a quick facelift and such a quick jump into technology and automation, we still kind of have these glaring holes where, you know, okay, well, I have all of this that's able to do this in two seconds and I'm able to, 
you know, keep this this process very optimal and, you know, it's efficient. But then over here, we have this other part that we just kind of forgot and kept, you know, oh, I can make it work. I can make it work. I can make it work. And now suddenly you're going through like seven different back doors to try and just get someone maybe paid or something pushed through a system. So I think that now that we've kind of done that huge technology jump where hopefully we're not running our supply chains on Excel anymore, um, we can we can kind of bridge the rest of that gap of the, okay, well, if we just get through this part, this other part will clean up afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. And I, f- I felt we were really in that large wave of really putting the pedal to the metal on automating supply chains be- before COVID hit. Uh, I think it was a very clear need for it at that moment. The same challenges were there in labor constraints and service and complex supply chains, et cetera. Maybe not yet the COVID volatility, which probably made it more Wall Street Journal headline uh, topics. Um, but but all the all the factors that are there that force people to rethink their supply chain post were there before COVID. The downside of what the aftermath of COVID gave was an, an enormous inflation, which I, in any case, in my two decades career, have, had not seen before. And and uh, the challenging part of, of really adopting more automated solutions has been in the fact that inflation in the, the let's say the, the consumer prices increasing, of course, salaries increasing accordingly because you still need to feed your family. In the the inflation of the cost to build an automated warehouse or to buy automation technology, that if that inflation actually went faster than the inflation that we see around us. So all of a sudden, business cases that were there before COVID made all the sense to invest into automated supply chain for all the right reasons, becoming more resilient in the end. They weren't feasible anymore from an economics perspective. And what, what, what we see happening in the market is that, is that for that reason, that the decisions have been delayed. And now, finally, that the reality is catching up with that the, 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 the solutions that are currently in place actually also kept inflating in cost. I feel that we're currently coming again to a really critical point um, where, where again, there's, a, there's, the, there's the right delta between your current operating costs and the future operating costs, which would make all these either collaborations with companies like ourselves or investments yourself would, would make sense yeah, I'm I'm optimistic, Alec. I got a good feeling about 2024. I feel like it's going to be a big year of growth, a big year of, um, you know, investing. It's going to be. I I still maintain it's going to be a rough, a rough winter. But after that, I feel like spring's going to come and it's going to get better. Um, that is my that is the hope that I'm holding on to for 2024. We we support the positivity. So that being said, we are running out of time. But there's a question that everyone that comes on the show has to answer, and Jonas, you are no exception. Are you ready for it? Um, almost. Let's, let's go. Is cereal considered a soup? Yeah, a, a super interesting question, of course, for uh, somebody who has two young daughters, and uh, they they do they do every they, they do everything with cereal what you can imagine, including making soup of it. Um, I I I think I think I think the answer is despite their actions is is an, is a no. Um, um, I don't think really the underwriting of that answer is, is super interesting. What, what I actually think is really interesting from this question is that you actually can reframe a lot of things and can find a lot of good ra- reasons why it would be a soup, isn't it? And uh, proof being at my home. Um, the, 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 the key thing, if I think about it, which makes something a truth, truth or not a truth, is everybody, if there's a majority of people agreeing that it's true or not. Uh, and I think in this case, uh, there's not a majority of people agreeing that the cereal is a soup. 
So if, if you want to get your, your truth, you have to work a lot of people, bribe them or so, to, uh, to say, yes, it's the soup. Um, or maybe if my suggestion is ask them a different question, is a cereal actually a snack? Because if you consider it, people that are eating a cereal as an alternative to potato chip, but being much more full of fibers, lower category, calories, etc., well, there's probably not the majority of them supporting it, but it would be an interesting contest to say, would you support it being a cereal or as a soup or a snack? Because I mean, I eat cereal as a snack. Like I'll put it in a bowl and just kind of like walk around and eat like, you know, Captain Crunch as a snack or Frosted Flakes as a snack. Exactly. So, it does, so my market research N is one. It means it's a yes. Well, we might have to change the question then. Is it a soup or is it a snack? It's, it's a new year. New year, new questions. Jonas, you just blew my mind a little bit, sir. <laughs> um, if anyone wants to reach out on their thoughts of cereal as a snack or if they have anything um, that, you know, they have automation questions about, where can they find you outside the show? Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn, Jonas uh, Swartau. Very difficult last name. Uh, you can also Google Neil Colt and Jonas. You will find me there. And of course, more information on uh, many Neil Colt channels that we have uh, accessible via www.newcold.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mary. You can catch other episodes of Running on Ice right here on FreightWaves.com or YouTube. Anywhere else you get your podcasts like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Need more Running on Ice news? No sweat. Subscribe to the newsletter on FreightWaves.com slash Running on Ice. See you on the internet.